0: Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at asht.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by our first repeat guest, Jim Wagner. Jim is an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist who also has a background in strength training and conditioning. He shares with us how to implement strength and conditioning in our hand therapy practices and why it's important for our patients. Welcome back to Hands in Motion, Jim. Hey everyone, welcome back. We have Jim back with us this evening,
1: and he's gonna talk to us a little bit about strength training. Jim, give us a little bit of background about how you got into this and everything about strength training.
2: Thanks, Stephanie and Carr, for having me on. This is great. I think this stuff is excellent. And I can give you a little bit of background about where I've come from with strength and conditioning over the years and but how the, the impetus really is has been quite a while with this. I've seen over the last couple of years more and more. I get a lot of, especially on social media, younger therapists, even some that have been around a while looking at trying to incorporate strength and conditioning in with their practices. And part of it, I think the reason is, is we're seeing more and more athletes, either younger athletes, older athletes. And when I say older athletes, some of our older folks are playing pickleball in their 80s. We're seeing all kinds of, what's up with pickleball? I never tried it, but I've got to do
1: that. Yeah, me neither. I often wonder too. <laughs>
2: Like it's a craze. So it is. how many distal radius fractures we've had from our patients and shoulder issues from pickleball. So it's not just our high school athletes, which we're seeing them younger and younger. I have two 13-year-olds with media epicondyl ORFs from pitching already at 13 years old. They haven't even gotten out of like elementary school yet. So this is not something that's going to go away since we're seeing students or young ones and elders from play sports, even just racket and leisure skills, occupation skills throughout their lifespan. We're seeing a significant need for this training as well as we go along. So that's kind of where I wanted to kind of touch base today. As far as my background is, you know, I'll be 52 here in September I did my first teenage bodybuilding competition at 15. I came in fourth place out of four people, so that was my claim to fame. So dead last.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but I got this little bug. I was this little scrawny kid, and I had these little bumps on my bicep for my biceps. I'm like, dude, I'm in it. So I learned from I don't know if you guys remember Joe Weider, Joe Weider Muscle and Fitness magazine. So with those yes. little clay plastic weights, that type of thing, in my garage and stuff like that. And now here I am in my early 50s, still working out, but in a nice higher tech garage gym now. But so I've been in a total of about 28 competitive powerlifting and bodybuilding competitions. I stopped the bodybuilding in my early 20s just because I hated to not eat. So I love to eat, and that was awful. So, I competed in that for quite a while and learned an awful lot about body systems, complete, how to train things completely, you know, whole body contractions, isokinetic, isometrics, the role of those in training. I think that helped me in my kines and my anatomy stuff in college and occupational therapy. Then, over the next so many years, I competed in powerlifting competitions and I went all the way up into the 240 weight class and did some heavy ones and competed in the squat bench and deadlift. I think my heaviest, uh, I think I had like a 15 or 1600 total at one point, which was, I think I had a 650 squat, a 550 deadlift and a 485 bench press. So that was with, I think it was the USA, USAPL credentialing agency or agency there. And so that was assisted. So I used some kind of a, like a bench shirt or squat suit or something like that there, but I did a lot of heavy load training for quite some time. My daughter now who is 22, 22 I think, and her in her third year of her DPT program, has also got the bug for powerlifting. And now she just asked me recently if I would do one with her in January. So dad is reluctant to do it. It's will be the first one in 23 years. (laughs) Just started my training again the other day and I don't know if I'm gonna be able to handle it. But anyways, it's always been something I've integrated. I've tried to from the very beginning into my occupational therapy, physical therapy, that aspect of things you can hand therapy and outpatient setting for my patients because it really helps to kind of close the gap on moving from the clinic to real life and they don't have to be a powerlifter or bodybuilder we think about these people's industrial athletes when they go on the job we think about what they do throughout the day the load they have to perform after an injury or illness and the benefits of strength training are many things like increasing cardiovascular output bone mineral density we know that cartilage gets strengthened by oppositional and weight-bearing loading there's nutrition pushed into the cartilaginous tissues respiratory status Increase endocrine systems, more insulin stability. So things like insulin-derived growth factors and testosterone growth hormone, all those things are released after bouts of resistive training. Central nervous system and increase in cognition, mostly do a lot of blood flow and those types of things that just get all around. And it's so overall, it helps our patients function better and I, watching my daughter go through a PT school, even she said in her programming that in our OT and PT training, we don't get much of the strength and conditioning background that we need. We take a look at pathology, but how do we move from a restorative thing to actually moving into a preventative or actually a healthy lifestyle? So, and I think resistive training, strength training in whatever capacity is a huge impetus for that growth right there and a huge area that we can have a big impact in. So.
1: So what happens, Same patient comes in, distal radius fracture, where do you start? How do you begin to set that program up and transition them to that strengthening and conditioning phase?
2: Here's when I look at and since we have students that come in all the time too as well, you guys probably, I'm sure, take students. We take them from the schools. We teach as well. We see in the classroom, we look at these frames of reference, right? And in schools, we learn these frames of references, but we learn them in isolation, and so when they command, students always ask, what frame of reference do you use here? I use the biomechanical approach, the Kawa model, the PEO or whatever. I'm like, man, I swim that river every day. I use the PEO. I use the biomechanical. I use them all. So we break our patient down, right, in, in college. And then it's our job to kind of put them back together as they come back out, so to speak. So we realize the first thing that we're this interconnected system. So it's not just a finger. It's not just a wrist or shoulder. It's all the way from the nuchal line right down to their plantar fascia and how people move. So what I first do is set the stage on really when it comes down to programming and what resistance training does. So we find that resistance training over time, we want to increase muscle mass and hypertrophy. So really what that is, is that it's increasing muscle protein synthesis that exceeds muscle protein breakdown. So we have this net protein balance. So we know there's two principles. They're kind of the same thing. One is the progressive overload principle and the said principle. So progressive overload is the kind of the same thing, is that progressive overload is we're trying to get this metabolic stress, exercise-induced muscle damage, mechanical stress to increase hypertrophy and growth over time. So if you remember your actin myosin and your Z-bands and all those things like that. When we get hypertrophy, we get those increase in those sarcomeres that are laid down in parallel orientation, basically through muscle damage. So with this progressive overload, that helps to enhance muscle growth. So the SEDS principle, again, is specific adaptation for imposed demands. So those are two kind of basic foundations when it comes to strength and conditioning. So again, specific adaptations for imposed demands. So that imposed demand can mean learning to get up to get your glutes and quads and hamstrings up stronger to get up off a chair. So, how can we program that for somebody? And then that comes with all these different things. So, it's as I mentioned earlier, we can now, instead of giving somebody, and I've heard it said, everybody gets three sets of 10, five times a day. Well, that's just, we do that just because I don't think we know what else to do. Now, what we can take a look at is say, how can we specifically tailor a program for my distal radius patient who has this? Again, one of the things we need to do is this occupational profile, right? We forget about that sometimes. So what is it that you want to be able to do? And a significant number of my patients come in, they say they want to be able to get out of bed without any pain, to get to play pickleball again or do whatever, you know, to exercise again. And so then we'll break it down from there and look at independent variables, things we can have an impact on with our training program, volume, intensity, load, reps and sets. ISO holds. We take a look at time under tension and tempo at the same time. So multi-joint versus single joint exercises. So these are just a few of the many, really, when it comes down to it, that we can have some changes on in our programming. So I think that's where I'd probably start first with my, if you were that case example, and I've got three or four that I wrote down just little ideas about that I've used with recently in my distal radius fracture, TFC, I just had a military woman come in who needed to pass. She had wrist pain. And I can tell you about her in a little bit to pass her PT exam. And then someone who had a neurological condition had a stroke. And we were using progressive overload and some of those principles with them for their strength and conditioning. So I wrote down a couple little quotes as I looked through some recent studies and stuff. I think some landmark studies have been around a little while. Think about this with your patient that comes in and even use this as a TFCC issue or anything like that at all. So think about your upper extremity patients. So disuse atrophy. So there is an NIH study in 2006. We see that decrease in muscle mass of 3 to 8% per decade after the age of 30, and it increases significantly after 65. So a 2016 study, a human skeletal muscle atrophy, after four days of immobilization, we get a decrease in 3.5% of overall muscle mass and 9% decrease in strength and a 23% reduction in 14 days. So think about that with your patients. So if they're immobilized for four weeks, what happens? What happens to the sarcomeres, the myofibrils, those units, the contractile fibers, even neurologically what happens? And we know with some of these functional MRI studies that we've seen significant changes, even when in three to five days on homunculus, right? That smudging, that cortical reorganization that we see. So people, not only can they neurologically not move physically, they become deconditioned as well. And a lot of our patients come in already in a deconditioned state. So I'll use this for an example. My father was just in the ICU down in Florida. And thank you to the OTs and PTs that worked with him down there. You guys rock. So he's a big man. And he came in, was in the ICU two to three weeks, and then rehab, went in at 200 and say 60 some pounds, came out at 228. Significant muscle atrophy and wasting. I watched him melt away basically in a few weeks to the point where he couldn't walk. So now we begin to start this whole process over again of rebuilding. So that's what kind of leads me into the next thing is how do we go ahead and what are some of the guidelines for people as well? So, again, if that kind of helps there, one of the things that we've taken a look at is the American College of Sports Medicine is a great resource, I think. And if you don't mind, I'll kind of go by what they recommend for general physical activity for even the novice. So when they think about your patient who comes in again who has had a significant surgery, again, has been immobilized for a period of time, maybe a total shoulder or like that at all, So think about these, these are for people without pathology, but what they recommend. So for cardiovascular, I recommend at least three days a week, moderate intensity, 40 to 60% of your maximum heart rate, okay? For vigorous, two days a week, 60 to 89% of your maximum heart rate, 30 to 60 minutes per day. So that's your cardiovascular, So I recommend for that. For resistance training for the novice, each muscle group two days a week with increasing experience, your exercise is going to be based on volume. So within 60 to 70% of your one rep max, about eight to 12 repetitions. Comprise of multi-joint exercises, working agonist, antagonist, single joint, core using a variety of equipment. And we'll talk about equipment that you can put in a clinic that's very cheap and easy to do. And then flexibility two to three days a week including static stretching, ten to thirty seconds, pNF, active and passive dynamic and ballistic stuff. So that's what the most recent ACM eleventh edition guide for physical activity recommends for general everyday patients. So now we've got to figure out how to get our patient fitting into that based on their occupational profile.
0: and well, I guess that would be my question, or maybe some of us are sitting here thinking, well, I'm a hand therapist, and I'm treating a patient for their radius fracture or, whatever, a sprain, a strain in their hand, in their upper extremity. How do we implement that? And maybe that's something that you can share with us. How do we go about bringing that into, you can argue, like you said earlier, we're treating the whole patient. So how do we start bringing that into the conversation, even from the beginning?
2: Yeah, Carl, that's a great question. And that's honestly probably about, I would say, 80% of the questions I've been asked are by younger therapists who have just come out of school and said, I've been in a setting where we only work from the elbow down. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is, is that, again, we don't function in isolation. We move just from the elbow down. And so the last I knew, the hip bone's connected to the ankle bone. And we have these fascial lines that are connected throughout the body. And we've done some stuff with EMG, surface EMG, looking at trunk rotation, those types of things, how the motor output increases just by adding some core stability exercises. So what I would say is here first is most important is to get a good occupational profile with your patient. That's really key. I think you need to do that. We should be doing that anyways, regardless of what our training is, physical occupational therapy. What is it that you miss that you can't do right now? What would you like to be able to do? And I think just by asking that simple question and having the conversation, I get it all the time. I feel better when I exercise. Well, no kidding. Who doesn't, right? I feel better when I get outside. I can't do it. Or I have some of our older ladies come in all the time and they're constantly asking me about yoga. And I'm like, I can't do yoga at all. It's awful. (laughs) I did a yoga class one time. I did it because I just wanted to show somebody that I could do. It It was really easy. I was awful. I was in the back (laughs) of the class sweating. I could barely hold myself up was pretty much humiliated <laughs> and got, you know, shown up, but it was awesome. I think yoga was great. So I think we have to ask that. And that's going to be one of their long-term goals, right? We can put that in there. So I think we make it harder than it has to be. And then we say, we put ourselves in this box and say, we can go on a rabbit hole this. Oh man, I don't want to get into that whole body strengthening because that's really somebody else's job. Who said that? I don't know if anyone has ever told me in my 29 years of practice that I can't work on my patient's total body conditioning with them. Because I've looked it up in practice acts. I can't tell that it is I can't work on strength training with them and help them to get back to function again. I haven't seen that anywhere. And when I've had these discussions with other colleagues, they don't know either. So I say to them, then I'm going to go ahead and tell someone tells me I can't do it. I'm going to go ahead and take a look at, I've been using total body conditioning with some of my patients. For example, one of my stroke patients, I'm teaching him how to do a hip hinge because he needs to be able to get up out of a chair. So we're working on loading, trying to work. Now he has some upper extremity weakness. So we're holding on to balls. We're working on trunk rotation for fascial slings. We're working using a landmine press with a Viking press on the end. And I can explain that either. That's a great strength and conditioning exercise for my patient. We're loading that, doing whole body. So again, those are some of the things we can begin to incorporate that stuff into our patient. What is it that you want to be able to do? I use this as an example too. one of my other women who had a distal radius fracture, had significant weakness of the upper extremity. She was immobilized even after ORF, like six weeks. I don't know why I came from, in from an outside place, very, very stiff hand, lots of rehab. She loved to do kettlebell exercises. So I love kettlebells. Kettlebells are great and they're very cost effective. You can put them in your clinic. There's a ton of stuff you could do with them with very little expense. So we'd worked on how to lift a kettlebell, how to carry them, asymmetrical carries overhead carries swings rotational stuff for them what are we doing we're still working distal radius fracture right because we're working proximal stabilizers and everything else so you can't say that i'm not working on my distal radius fracture i am just at not the right time early on i'm still going to do my stuff i'm doing before and i'm still going to get the radiocarpal joint moving maybe mid-carpal mobilizations or whatever i gotta do at some point i'm still gonna but i've got to have that dynamic those dynamic stabilizers up the chain farther so it never made any sense to me when someone told me why. When I asked a question, why can't I do this stuff? So, and I'll use the example. I'm going to digress just for a second. So maybe this will start a whole, maybe another thing here. So, you can go on Instagram or any other place right now, and any of the untrained person can look at a hundred thousand different mobility exercises, and come in and say, I'm going to do this. Well, we say, oh, listen, man, I don't work in that body part right there. So you know, I can't. So if the person who is untrained, who can look at this and has no idea what they're doing with it. Why can't we take a look and say, boy, I know that joint is supposed to be mobile, but it's hypomobile right now. I'm not saying we're going to mobilize it, but maybe we can look and say, here's some strategies to help give you better mobility to function better. I mean, when I teach our kids in kinesis and stuff like that, I teach them lower extremity goniometry, manual muscle testing, end feels, what's my open pack, close pack positions, those types of things. We need to know those types of things. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes out of our scope of practice, then we can look in other areas. So, but the point is, and I've, I'll use this example here. One of my overhead athletes, cross uh, CrossFitter, came in and she had shoulder pain all the time. Okay, great. Let's get you back in there. We'll do some shoulder pain. We had some posterior superior capsule tightness. We did some mobility stuff there. Got her feeling better. She came back in. She just really bothered me. I said, let's just see what your lift looking like. So she did an overhead squat. Looked awful. It's terrible. She had h- tight hip flexors. She was collapsing in when she went in. So she had her glutes were weak. If you want to say that, she wasn't. She had a and she had poor dorsiflexion, subtalar joint. Mobility wasn't very good there. So I said, hey, let's just get over this right now. Let's take a look. Here's some stretches to increase your hip mobility. And let's take a look at your dorsiflexion really quick. We well, measured her dorsiflexion. Guess what? She did a couple simple banded exercises, mobility stuff for her hip, some stability stuff, along with her upper extremity stuff. And guess what? Your shoulder pain went away. <laughs> so again, that can open up a can of worms. But the point is, there is nothing to say we could not look outside of the problem area. When we take a look at occupation as a whole and the person as a whole, we can look at those areas. If we step outside of our comfort zone and it's something we're not familiar with, then we have to definitely get some help, which I always do, no matter what it is. I always seek out opinion. So once we do that, we can engage the person in something meaningful to them right? Occupations. And a lot of times those leisure skills, those things that they can do, then we can modify those client factors to help increase the strength and endurance overall.
0: I want to go back to something that you talked about a little bit. You were kind of throwing out some different terms and I want to start thinking about dosing and you were talking about time under tension and just all the different variables that we can play with as we're implementing strength training with our patients. Can we dive into that a little bit deeper.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think those are great. So when it comes to programming, programming, and this is way beyond the scope of this presentation right here, but there's some great, and I'll give you some resources to go to, there's some great stuff that's out there. So again, as we said earlier, not everything has to be three sets of 10. And I think we do that most of the time because we're not sure what else to do. So again, what we just talked about with our occupational profile we might have someone that comes in and needs to lift quick bursts of energy that has to move things that are very heavy. So for example, I had a person that lifted kegs of beer, which gosh, I would love that job, right? So kegs of beer and in these cases in one of those delivered sodas and all stuff, there's a lot of quick pulling, a lot of forceful thrusting stuff. And like that was a, a patient who had a rotator cuff repair. So I'm taking a look at what do they need? They need quick bursts of energy, power. They need some muscle endurance at the same time. So I took a look at, so here's three things that we're usually looking for for training. Hypertrophy which we're trying to get, and usually we get the hypertrophy at between eight to 10 weeks in there in general. So usually the first three weeks or so, it's more three to four weeks, and and we see more neurological retraining at that point. The swelling that we see within the muscle tissue is due to a muscle-induced damage, and tissue-induced damage, that we're getting more neurological retraining. It's usually after that seven to eight to 10 weeks, somewhere in there, that we're starting to get an increase in hypertrophy. So it takes a little while with our patients. So if we're looking for hypertrophy with muscle growth with our particular patients, say they're really deconditioned, usually we're going to change the volume and load. So we're going to say like four to six sets, somewhere in there, six to 12 repetitions, 70 to 80% of your load. So that means you're going to go at a relatively high amount of weight that they can control. And then you're usually going to give them 30 to 60 seconds rest in between each one of those exercises. The reason that is, is because those dosages have been showed over the year to help release things like growth hormone, testosterone, those types of things as well. And so that's a general hypertrophy dosage package right there. If we're looking for explosive strength, so maybe there are those that need to be able to, again, lift things quickly and fast. That we really need those type two fibers that are more anaerobic. So we're going to take a look at more like explosive strength, maybe six to 10 sets of a particular exercise, four to six repetitions. So 60 to 70% of your one rep max. And those, there's a lot of different ways to calculate one rep maxes or even close to it. There's different calculators online and stuff like that. But then we give them a little more rest in between to get some muscle recovery. So about two minutes rest or so in between each exercise. All right. So that's kind of explosive strength. Then there's power. So I ask myself, what am I training my patient for? And then there's power. So now we're looking for maybe, and we're just looking for to move something. We have some people that have a lot of heavy lifting or something they have to be able to do, but have some rest period in between there. So if my person is working on a line all day long and they're constantly moving, then I'm going to do more of a metabolic stress and endurance program. And I'll show you what that is here in just a second. But they need some power where they have, maybe they're a laborer and they just lift some heavy stuff really quick. Three to five sets, one to five repetitions, greater than 80%. So a much higher load, right? Right. So a much higher load, but we have a higher rest period, three to five minute rest in between each particular set, okay? Or each particular exercise. And so that way we start to program and dose, again, volume, load over time, rest periods. And then if you're looking for a general metabolic stress or endurance thing where someone really needs, like I've got people that work on a line where they're kind of doing movement all day long. So we look at some core stability stuff, but we do higher repetitions, maybe two to three sets of a circuit. We set that up in the clinic or something like that. And then 30 seconds resting between each one of those. So there's less rest. And we begin to train those muscles and stuff like that again, to kind of get back into that before they return. So when it comes to things like tempo and time under tension, I love those. And I think they're great because this is where I do a lot with some of my patients. I begin to incorporate isometrics. So tempo exercises are basically like You might say like a four to one ratio. Like for a concentric contraction, you might be doing a four second concentric and maybe a quick lowering phase. So maybe one second down, or maybe opposite. It might be one second up and then a four second eccentric contraction. So that's kind of your time under tension. Tempo and time under tension are kind of the same thing. So for example, certain lifts, I might have them go halfway through the exercise or the lift and just hold that there. So let's say we're doing working in scaption, working in the scapular plane, I'm like, okay, we're going to do three to five repetitions. You're going to do an iso hold right there, three to five seconds. I want you to hold that tissue time under tension, hold it there, feel the muscle, engage. And I say this all the time to my patients, engage before you activate. So watch your patient tomorrow when you get in the clinic, some of those that are untrained. When they go to exercise, I had a video of a guy one time, I asked him if I could take it and I don't have it anymore of him exercising. He was taking these bands and just like flopping them all over the place. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? He's like, I'm working out. I'm like, you're not working out. You look like you're one of those little, you know, those little things they put outside, like the like advertisements that have the fan on the bottom with a squiggle all over the place. And so subconsciously, he was thinking he was doing a great exercise, but consciously he was looked awful. So when we went back and through, and so those are some of the things I'll do. And, I, and again, I think the role of isometrics in strength and conditioning has been sorely overlooked. And I'm excited about one of our upcoming podcasts at the ASHT. i was going to be on the role of isometrics in rehab. And I have been on isometrics for a long time, super excited about this coming up. But isometrics do a couple of different things. They help with tendon healing. They help to get some tension within the tissue. You build up tension, and then they do work in this thing called post-activation potentiation. So you begin to build up tension within the muscle. So when you get to move, you already have stored energy within that sarcomere and within that myofibril. You move with more efficiency and better power. A lot of powerlifters do that. They'll do iso holds and they'll do rack pulls, different things like that. Build up tension within the muscle, and then they move and they move faster. So they also help with fibroblast proliferation. And again, you get a short-term analgesic effect at the same time. So when I say ISO holds, I may just have them go ahead and say, all right, you're going to hold this here. We're going to do so many repetitions. Hold it, feel it, kick it in. And I'll go around and I'll tap them on the shoulder. I'll poke him in the side. And this is what makes it exciting for the patient because it's not just throwing around a band because, oh my gosh, it's so boring. We come in and say, look, it, you're going to move with a purpose. This is why you're doing it, because I don't want you to get injured again. and I don't want you back in here to tell you the truth. So I want to get you stronger and get you out of here. And no one argues with that. So there's a lot of variables. And that's what we can kind of get out of that, like, three sets of 10. Like, what are you training for? What are they training for? Not everyone has to do a powerlifting a me. And one of the things that we don't discuss a whole lot is really taking a look at the role of diet and sleep when it comes into that, too, as well. I don't care how hard you train. If you don't get good sleep, you can't heal. Your parasympathetic system can't help heal. Your gut health and all that stuff is off. And you have to take in some good foods. So, I mean, we have our industrial athletes that come in and they train and lift. They work hard all day long and then they smoke a pack of cigs and eat some Twinkies and expect that they're going to function really well, right? It's kind of like my daughter when she goes out and track and stuff like that. And she has a pack of Pop-Tarts you know, whatever, before she goes like, ah, I just crashing. it's like, hey, man, pound another pack of Pop-Tarts and you're good to go. So does that help cars? I mean, you take a look at those. There's a lot of good stuff when it comes to it. And really, it's a whole package as we take a look at it. And then that question is, and it always goes back to, what are you training for? And it doesn't have to be a competition. It can be, I'm training to go back to work eight to 10 hours a day. I'm training to put food on the table. I'm training to get myself up out of a chair. I'm training to get myself dressed in the morning. So again, when someone comes in, when our patient comes in who has a supracondylar fracture or a distal radius fracture or a stiff hand, I'm not just looking at that. I'm going to look at what do they have to do in the long run to be able to get back to doing what they want to be able to do. And then I found what's interesting is sometimes if I take my focus off micromanaging that stiff PIP joint and add in global strengthening to my patient, it really makes a difference. I use this for an example. One of my total shoulder patients it was an anatomical total shoulder. Weren't moving very well. We can do some manual therapy with anatomical total shoulders. They were really stiff. What I found is they are really contract. They were really co-contracting. It was very difficult for them to move, doing some soft tissue work. So I said, now that we're ready in the rehab phase, where we can do some overhead pressing. We can do, and we've modified that with a landmine press. And the landmine press, if you've ever seen that, is basically like a bar you stick in a corner there's really cool stuff you can do. It's cheap. You can put it in your clinic, really cheap. And you can do some squat overhead presses. You can do some rows, all kinds of different things with it. But the thing's cool about it is they don't need a whole lot of shoulder flexion in order to do this landmine type of press and when you can modify the activity. So she was having a hard time with it. She couldn't focus on some of the exercises. So we took her over there and there's a little thing called the Viking press attachment that we put on the end. And it's basically like it helps you to do all these overhead pushes. It's pretty cool. So look at that up, Viking press. So we started working those. And we began to work total body and we started to be taking range of motion before and after. And we noticed that she gained another 15, 20 degrees shoulder elevation without us doing a whole lot of focus there of focusing right on the joint. We looked at, again, total body. We're working on like a partial squat to an overhead press. She was loving it. She was was like, oh my gosh. And what did that relate to? It correlated to her at home, making sure she could reach things out of a cupboard. Sometimes she had to spring up out of things. So she was doing a little bit of a jump at the end of it. And she loved it. She was really into it. So I think that that really helped decreasing the amount of focus. Sometimes what we do is we work so hard on a particular joint that sometimes we keep people in, a, in an inflammatory state a little bit. Sometimes that's my personal feeling. And Sometimes we aggravate things. If things aren't moving well, after three or four visits, try something a little bit different to see if we might be able to change and stir things up a little bit. So.
0: I like what you said about I guess that remember that all of our patients are training for something. Maybe they aren't training for a powerlifting meet. They aren't training for going to be an Olympic swimmer or whatever, but they are all training for something. I actually this week saw a great post. It was on Instagram. It was a kind of a physical therapy account and the comment, or I guess the caption was, is this functional question mark? And it was videos that went from a flight attendant showing the things that she had to do, pulling that heavy door, and then it switched to a strength and conditioning exercise that she was doing in her therapy. I don't know what she was being seen for, but it was showing that back and forth. And like you said, she was training to get back to being a flight attendant. She has to lift bags. And so they had her throw in sandbags and lifting heavy over her head to get those bags into the overhead bins. And she's, like you said, an industrial athlete. She's getting back to her job and they're incorporating, there's barbells out, there's sandbag weights, all of those things to get her back to her occupation.
2: It's very exciting. I love what I do anyway. But the fact is when you see someone gain, I'll give you a couple of examples just along that line, Kara, when we think about this. And remember, I just this is a caveat. remember too, tendinopathies, tendon issues, tendons, they love load too. So loading tendons, I mean, we think about a tendon that even though it's contractile properties, so we're looking at like at a sponge and we contract, that fluid comes out and then we squish, it's like a sponge. We want to get that stuff moving. We also have that tensile force on there as well. So we want to load that tendon add a good control load so that we get those parallel fibers to line back up a little bit better and help to be able to sustain that load over a period of time. So remember, and again, there's some great articles on dosage again for tendinopathies. One of them in particular, I have a little couple notes here is that they like smooth tempo, right? So you can like a three to four second eccentric on those there, three to five sets, 20 to 30 seconds in between sets and then two to three minutes in between exercises. So load those tendons like your eccentrics for your lateral pecondylopathy. So if that's truly lateral pecondylosis, you you know, your rotator tendinosis, those types of things there. But think about that as well too when it comes to those. So here's a couple really cool cases. One just happened this week and she just finished up. So I had a young lady that came in who was going into the military and she had a pre-dynamic SL ligament instability. She didn't have an SL ligament tear She just had some mobility there. We needed some stability in between there. We needed to get that going. So we did some dart thrower's motion over there. We put her in a wrist restore to give a boost to the proximal pole to get that up there as well. We gave her some strengthening the FCR because the SL ligament was intact. And we worked the APL, those things there to kind of get that and some wrist proprioception for a little while. So she had a hard time weight bearing in a push-up position. She had lost shoulder strength, couldn't do it. She's going to the military, need to be able to pass this test. So the military training now is different. So there's bag carries, pushups, trap bar deadlifts, kettlebell throws overhead. So guess what we did in the clinic, set them up. So even though on top, there's our wrist stability stuff we did with our proprioception work in the carpus. And then we carried that over into what she was doing. For me, it got me off behind the desk cause I can't sit anyways. And it got me there with my patient and she was like eating it up. I just got a message. We use Epic. We just got a message from her the other day. She'd passed at no wrist pain. she passed it with flying colors. And one of the things that's so cool about this is this what I love about strength training is the confidence it gives people. I got to tell you, even for my own personal, I was a scrawny little kid when I first started out. I I told my daughter this one story one time that I got tossed in the trash can when I was a kid. No joke. I did. So now (laughs) she tells me, she always throws up my face now. She's like, Hey, watch out, dad, or I'll throw you in a trash can. So (laughs) The point is is that when you see that strength occur, that muscle growth happen, that ability to meet those goals, it gives you this confidence to move on. So another one here in general was, I already talked about one of my patients had a TFC repair and she was getting frustrated. She was probably 14 to 16 weeks out, had had a real stiff hand beforehand. She had fell, had a clavicle fracture, lots of other issues in the whole extremity. So it affected everything. She was there for a long time. So we got to a point where, okay, move, things are moving pretty good. Her pain is controlled. We went into some stability proprioception stuff. She's like, you know, some, I still don't feel I don't have the endurance like I had beforehand. I'm like, perfect. So let's get into some strength conditioning. So knowing what the precautions that we had to watch out for with our TFCC stuff, she used things like wrist widgets, supports. We controlled the loading. We started out with some low load and built our way up to time and retention and different things. I used things like trap bars. So one of the things she had a hard time doing was picking things up and carrying. So kettlebells with bands on them, alternate carries. Sometimes she lifted things overhead, reaching off while she was holding on to a case. So we did bottoms up kettlebell press with a banded kettlebell on the opposite side. And we did walks with that. And then I did some perturbation stuff. So when she static held it there, okay, then I knocked that arm around a little bit. Then I pushed her at the core, get a better base of support. Guess what, man? She was loving it. So we started to do trap bar deadlifts, carrying those around the clinic a little bit. So it began to build her up. We moved. to a lot of places, said, okay, hey, you're great. You got your pronation supinations back. You're good to go. You're out of here. So I want to take my patient to the next level if they're able to. There's a lot of factors that are in there, insurance, co-pays. And I'm not saying everyone can do that, right? But the next step with that patient, she's like, I never thought I could do this. She's like, I always wanted to exercise when I was younger. I couldn't get it. I said, you can do anything if you work hard enough at it. You can get this. So it gave her the confidence that she was able to do that. She started a program, the plan of fitness and started going back in, you know, and then we she got all the secondary benefits of the oral health, cardiovascular and stuff as we go along. So again, sometimes those things that are surprising, and I'll use one more example before I stop. For example, I like to see our power lifters and bodybuilders. I think they're great. They're a great group. I get them. So I see a lot of distal biceps, button repairs and stuff like that, whatever. And it's usually middle-aged males that are still trying to relive their youth that have blown out a bicep. And they come in and they're like, all right, all right, so we've got to rehab that. So one of our guys was a mixed martial art, bare knuckle fighter guy. He's a rough fella, stuff like that. But he also worked in a job where he's using a lot of hoses. I think it was sewage or something like that. He was using a lot of pulls, a lot of pulling exercises. So when he got ready, when we got him through those phases, he was doing really good. Pronation, supination is looking good, good and strong. We loaded that throughout the rehab process under following the docs orders and stuff like that. He had some deconditioning, again, trunk, shoulder girdle, periscapular muscles, So we started moving into like prowler pushes. So, you know what I'm talking about? Or sled pushes, those types of things. So you had to do a lot of loaded pushing. Then we do pulls. You can pick up a battle rope, super cheap. Those aren't really expensive. So we got those battle ropes and we hooked it up to the sled and started doing pulls with it. Like he was pulling a big hose for a line. And then we started doing battle ropes with that to gain endurance. So we did a lot of stuff. One of the things you want to be able to do before he got done, too, is make sure, and this is far enough out where he was safe to do it. We checked the doctors to do a pull-up. So we started working pull-up progressions up through. So by the time he got done, he was close to his full pull-up, almost there. And then he sent me a text probably within a few weeks afterwards that he did his first pull-up, feels pretty good about it, and is ready to move on. And it was only over maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of times a week for a couple of weeks. We progressed him through when he was ready to go through those visits. So we got very specific in our training in the clinic. So I still got to do all the fun stuff with him, the distal biceps repair, all that stuff that goes along with it, soft tissue, all that good jazz. But then we went into a particular focused strength and conditioning program that was going to get him back to meet his goals again. And he still shoots me texts every once in a while like, hey, is this safe to do? Can I do this and that? Most of the time he's doing it anyways before I even ask me. But anyway, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> aren't most of our patients yeah <laughs> they're like asking for yeah. forgiveness instead of permission those, <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah those are the ones that test the waters and we figure out <laughs> hey we could, I could have done this a little earlier so but anyways those are some good examples where you can put this into practice and you don't have to sit there and put somebody under a bar all the time and another example too i'll use some of our again i've we talked about this beforehand i do use blood flow restriction training which i think is very helpful and i also do it with again some of our weightlifters again back with some pec tears rotator cuff repairs, those types of things. So we get them back. We use a regular barbell. I teach them how to use the barbell again, how to brace and how to support and all that good stuff as we go along. So after an injury. And so again, if we don't teach them and help them, that's part of what we do. And people come back and you gain a patient for life, which is great. What I could do is, I don't know if you're interested, I can give you some ideas about where to get some particular training if you're looking for some more and how to implement some of these strategies into your clinic, I guess. And I'll look at what I've done over the years And what I'm still doing, my daughter now is going to be, she's graduating again here in 2024, but she'll be going through her CSCS training and her CPT training. I've already done that. She'll be doing that this next fall. Again, she's learning these strength and conditioning principles that she didn't get in PT school. And then we didn't probably already didn't get no T school, which I know I didn't get it almost 30 years ago. So a couple of different ways to take a look at this. And I was going to work at Penn State at one point in strength and conditioning when I thought about getting out of therapy. I'm glad I never did, but two of the things they really look for was the National Strength and Conditioning Association's Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialists. So that's a very good foundational certification. It's an exam that you take after you have an OTPT degree, some kind of health science-related degree. I think you don't even have to have a health science-related degree, right? You take a test, you study for that. A lot of good stuff in there. I think it's excellent. It's very well known. So you can go to nsca.org, and look up for CSCS, certified strength and conditioning specialist. There's also a certified personal trainer that's on there. Well, and also there's a couple other new certifications out of there that look at more of the medical retraining, people who have gone through like who have diabetes, cardiac issues, those types of things. So if you're looking to move into strength and conditioning, those areas. So think about your OTs or PTs that are inpatient that may want to do more of that stuff, right? The American College of Sports Medicine, you can't go wrong with there. There's some great stuff there as well. There's also a great one online, Barbell Rehab, which is, I think they have five courses now, Barbell Rehab. Dr. Michael Barber, I just did three of his. One is a barbell training for the post-operative patient. Total knees, total shoulders, total hips, lumbar, stuff like that. Great course. Thought it was great. A lot of good stuff. Then also Barbell Fundamentals, which is on there. And then uh, female training, we uh, are training for the female athlete. And there's one for low back, I think, that's on there too. about barbell training for low back patient. And then there's other ones that are out there that are equally reputable. Diesel Strength and Conditioning has one, which is, I think it's a certified physical prep specialist, which is very, very involved. It's really good. So there's some good ones out there. I think you stay to some more reputable ones. And one of the things I find people always ask me too is, how do you break into that within your particular area? Well, if you want to build that in your practice, you have to just go for it. So I suggest is go to your orthopedic surgeons. Go to your sports med people and say, I've got a real interest to work with athletes or to work with in the area of upper extremity rehab or strength and conditioning and begin to build a rapport. You've got to take something to the table. So I'd say you look at some kind of a training particular first and take that with them. And if you have an interest or have some experience in the background, that helps out too as well. I find the ones that live it, just like anything else, are the ones that make the best teachers sometimes. Not always, but and then go from there. And then if you don't have any experience, seek out some training from people that know more than you, which I know there's a lot of people that do it more than you. so I look at those experienced trainers, some of those people that do it all the time. I do it as much as I can, but I'll go to the ones that have maybe full-time businesses and say, I, I want to spend a couple hours with you on a Saturday, seeing how you run your people through their strength and conditioning programs. Go to your colleges, look at your strength and conditioning coaches. I love Westside Barbell. Of course, I'm a meathead anyways, but there's some great stuff that's out there. But I think we find that we're so afraid to jump into that because we think people are going to say no. But the vast majority of time, I've found that people say yes, because they love to share that stuff with you. And it's so exciting. I mean, I've met a couple of turds sometimes where they just like, ah, oh, not. Nah, you find somebody else. I'm like, all right, wipe the dust off your feet and go find somebody else. <laughs> but I think that's a good place to start for the most part.
0: No, those are great yeah. resources. Thanks yeah, for sharing thanks. those.
1: Yeah, I think you gave everybody a good place to begin. I guess we can include your email in case people have questions they want to specifically ask you.
2: Yeah, sure. And if you have it, it's like jwagnercht71 at gmail.com. And I have an Instagram handle. How about that? cht underscore power, I think, 71. So that's where you can hit me up with some questions on there. Here's another way to Google Scholar has some great stuff on there. I just look up There's some great articles that are on there. A lot of them are free. NIH has a lot of stuff on there. strength training, muscle hypertrophy, a lot of things. There's some really, really good stuff that's out there by doing a quick lit search. And there's some really fascinating reading on how to kind of put this together. So those, and then I said a good base to start is go to that NSCA.org and you'll find a lot of good strength and conditioning foundational stuff on how to build a practice too as well. So mm-hmm.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much. I think it's a good start. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. I appreciate it. And you gave us some really great information.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it so much.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content.
0: You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.